This is Jim Simavan, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. For a while now, you might have heard me tell you the podcast is sponsored by Zencaster, and it still is. I've been working with Zencaster as my audio host for quite some time now. The podcasting industry has also grown at an exponential rate over the past two years and it's expected to grow to more than a $150 billion industry by 2030. I've said before, I'm a huge fan of podcasting and if you're a fan of podcasting or investing, maybe both, Zencaster has now announced its round of crowdfunding. You can invest as little as $100 and join a community of other investors who seek to help Zencaster and independent podcasters succeed. If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com forward slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description below to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. Hi everyone and welcome to That UFO Podcast. This is a bonus show. Last month I had the wonderful Paul Sinclair on and the feedback from his interview was fantastic. So many of you getting in touch to say you really enjoyed it. If you remember, when I had Paul on, we were talking about a particular incident called the Hunmanbait incident. Now, Paul had to scut over it very quickly just due to time constraints, but we agreed at the end of that it was worth covering in a lot more detail. So that's exactly what we're going to do. So I have with me again, author of the Truth Proof series, investigator and researcher Paul Sinclair. Paul, welcome back. Thank you very much, Andy. It's great to be back and it's actually great to be able to tell the Humanby incident with a bit more detail because... It's an incredible account that I don't think anybody's unearthed and there's not a lot of people heard about it. I've spoke about it on probably three or four podcasts over a, a number of four or five years. So, yeah, we'll give this a go. Yeah, well, you called it uh, another Rendlesham. So without, what... without a doubt. When I, I, I talked about it at a conference, Outer Limits Conference, probably about four years ago. Sorry for cutting through your words there, Andy. No, I don't and, think uh, I think it was the... I can't remember the newspaper. It were a big national newspaper picked up on it and it said Britain's Rendlesham uh, sorry Britain's Roswell <laughs> answer to Roswell and, and one of the reporters were there that day I can't think what the paper was I do apologize but it'll be there if you google it so yeah what were you going to say no I was going to say let's start with some of the basics then because we touched on it last time but let's go like we never spoke about it at all whereabouts is Hunmanby and that's H-U-N-M-A-N-B-Y yeah, that's correct. It's Manby. Yeah, so H-U-N-M-A-N-B-Y, spot on. So uh, we're, not, we're on the East Yorkshire coast. It's in between Scarborough and Bridlington. So I'm in Bridlington. It's approximately nine miles from where I am now and two miles inland from the coast. Just a little village, uh, as I said, between East and North Yorkshire. And it's got, an, it's got a rich history of unexplained phenomena as well. We, you know, we touched on wolflands, which we're not going to do today. But just to give you an example, we've included some reports of, from Humanby in the documentary. Humanby quite literally means farmstead of the hound man. You know, and, and it's, it, you know, going back in ancient times. But let's jump to the story. Um, I received a bit of information probably five years ago from a guy who lives in Flamborough who's responsible for the overseeing of finances in a club, uh, you know, a working man's club at Flamborough. We'll just call him Jim. Well, that is his name, but we're not with his surname. And uh, he said, I've got a bit of an interesting story to tell you. He says, there's been some decorators working at the club. And 
well, I've just found myself talking to them during a tea break and things, and they've just one of them's come out with this incredible story. They got on about unexplained phenomena around the area of eastern North Yorkshire, nothing to do with me at that point. And David, who, as it happens, used to work with me, his son, this guy's son, said, Dad, tell Jim about the UFO that landed when you were working at Humminbee. So he unfolded this story. So as Jim's telling me, I says, you won't believe it. I says, Andrew actually lives 200 yards away from me. I've known him over 20 years. His son used to work with me, and they've never told me. Not because Andrew, he... he he really he wanted to withdraw from it because it was so prolific. It was so intense when it happened, and the the amount of attention that the, these guys received by talking about it weren't nice for them within the local community. But Cat were out at bag. I mean, me and David were great friends. I'm friends with one of the witnesses, Andrew. As I said, he never spoke about it, but once Jim had told me, within a day I was up at Andrew's house. Knocking, knocked on his door and I said what's this and I'm in his kitchen he allowed me to record him and they were working at this industrial unit in 1996 97 and 98 they all there were three guys there were Andrew Dave and the boss who I've called Steve because he doesn't want his name used and the, for Andrew and Dave these were secondary jobs they worked during the daytime. Andrew was a sign writer, still is. And Dave worked as a painter and decorator, I believe. And on a night, they'd come to the unit to assist Steve. And in the unit, there were fairground rides. There were high-end motor vehicles that were needed spraying. Sign writing needed doing. So every night from work, sometimes seven days a week, they would arrive at this unit Four and four, five o'clock, six o'clock, depending. Weekends, they might work till 3 a.m. in the morning. But that's the basic. So you got the gist of what was happening. So they'd been working there, well, 1996, and it, it started subtly. Uh, Andrew said he was working in, on his own in the workshop, you know, preparing a car. I would not need to say what he was doing because I don't know exactly, but I would imagine he's rubbing it down or he'd done some filling. And just to give you an overview of the unit, it's a huge building that you could get uh, double-decker buses in, two or three buses in, big roller shutter doors at one end, roller shutters at the other, one side door either end as well for the for the guys to in and out. I think that's important that we paint that picture as we go through story. And in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a, there's a toilet block, a small toilet block, some stairs leading up to an office above. And there's just a space then between the office and the roof of the warehouse of about four foot. It had formerly been an, an engineering unit, so there was little boxes of washers and nuts and bolts, not everywhere, but just around the edges of the unit and on top of this uh, office block, Steve's office. So Dave's preparing the car, and as he's sort of doing something, he said, he just kind of glanced up and a block of wood came from the top of the office block, was straight past his head. There's nobody else in. He's looking and he's, he's kind of smiling to himself because back in the 1990s, there were young men. They thought, is somebody playing a prank? So he thought Steve or David hidden up there and were wanting to act about. So he just carried on what he was doing and he's... he's keeps glancing up and there's nothing. There's just this four-foot void of darkness above the office. And then he hears a crack on side at unit. Remember, they're all sort of big, these big corrugated sheeted units. And uh, 
there's a here's a crack then there's a crack on the other side and he can't work out what it is a period of time passed maybe 20 minutes half an hour i don't know but dave and steve arrived it weren't them so he told them and uh they just kind of laughed it off. They thought, well, it weren't us and, well, you're being silly, like nothing's happened. So let me just, I've got notes here, guys. You have to, there's just a lot to hum and be. So over the next few days, they all started hearing these strange cracks and they, they realised that it was steel washers and nuts that were hitting the side of the building. From the inside, when they're all together, there's no one else in, and they did a crack, and then they did the tinkle and the drop on the floor, and there's these projectiles sort of hitting sides at, at building, and you know, nothing got damaged. That's what was interesting because they'd got high-end motor vehicles in at some in, in some instances, and nothing were getting, none of the vehicles were getting hit. Mm-hmm. So they, they're trying to work out what's happening, and this is this is June of 1996 because it started June, July, and August. There was during that period there was a guy that worked there who's passed away called Alan. So he experienced it as well. There's a on the industrial unit, and it's not big now, it's still there. It's it's used for something else now. But during the 1990s, there were only about four or five big units there, if we can call them big. And one of them, a few units down, was a coach unit. We used to strip coaches out and renovate coaches. They're still there. I've spoken to some of the guys who remember. Uh, they remember this happening and they were sort of closer friends then. Well, not that they fell out, but, you know, there's a lot of time elapsed between, between the 1990s and now. Sure, yeah. So it, it built up. Oh, and Dave's mum and dad used to come every night for no other reason, I think, than they wanted to see their son. He was the youngest of these three men. So they'd drive through from Bridlington, bring him a few sandwiches because he'd go straight from his day job. And and they'd sit and talk to Steve, the boss, and talk to Andrew. And I think they just enjoyed that kind of breaking the monotony and stay there for two or three hours. So that's important because they experienced the strange phenomena as well. So it built up over, I don't know, over a period of a few months and suddenly they would hear a, a crack and they'd look and painting lid would fall to the floor. There's nothing above them, Andrew. There's literally, there's no floors above them. It's straight to the roof. Uh, they'd be walking and they'd turn around and there'd be a coffee jar just drop behind them or in front of them, all sorts of things. So all of, all of this is, is happening. Now, we've talked about the piece of wood that flew, flew off and the loud cracks I just need to just go through a few more notes, people. So, I, was, I was so, just going to ask there, Paul, might be a good time to do it. So, so far... Well, we're going to get to it being, you know, a UFO case, and it's, and it's you know, classically. It yeah. But it's, it starts off with a lot of classic paranormal activity, doesn't it? You know, it, things it, flying about. It builds, it builds. It's almost poltergeist-type activity. And just to draw away from Hummond before a moment, I, I wonder if listeners have noted that poltergeist activity, in my opinion, starts almost amoeba-ish. It's almost that there's subtle things that happen, and it kind of grows with a person's awareness that it's evolving. Uh, it, it starts as though it's got no intelligence at first, in my opinion. You know, the, we just hear clicks and ticks and, and strange little things, subtle things are happening. But as as the person becomes aware of the poltergeist, we can we kind of get drawn into it. Is it feeding off our energy? I don't know. 
So, so all of that happened. Unless there's any, do you want to add any more to that, Andrew? No, no, go for it. Carry now, on. So everything happened. There was an awareness to the phenomena. They never caught it. All this, everything like they did this crack. They turn. There'd be a crack opposite side, and it were all a sort of out of their vision. They never caught it. I, remember, I think. The only person that saw anything actually flying through the air was Andrew's son, David, because he was a young lad then, and he took him to the unit one day, and he said he actually saw steel washers flying off the top of the roller shutter doors. So we've, we've got this strange awareness to the, to the phenomena anyway. And back in 1997, after August, so we've got June, July, August of 96, it stopped in August for no reason uh, everything just sort of petered out. So it built in intensity and stopped. They go through the year then, the back to 1997, everything's going as normal, and uh, it starts again, June 1997. Why June? Uh, and it's, as you've just kind of hinted at, it kind of pulls them in. You know, it's steel washers bouncing off walls and uh, coffee jars, don't get me wrong, I don't suppose they had hundreds and hundreds of coffee jars, but that's just the examples that they'd given, and painting, lids sort of dropping, it, 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 were, it were all there. But it built in intensity. So now, light bulbs, they'd be in the unit, and all the lights would suddenly go really bright. I mean, we've all experienced it in his own home just before a light goes, and all power would be cut to the unit. But what was interesting was the radio, which was plugged into the three-pin socket, not on batteries, continued to play all things that quite honestly are impossible aren't they but th that's what the insist was happening uh when they were going out this is 96 now so we're june july and august of 96 when they would go out to their vehicles on a night whatever time 11 o'clock one in the morning not on all occasions but there'd be small piles of gravel on the bonnets of the vehicles Little little pyramids of gravel, which they couldn't explain. They couldn't. I mean, it could have been somebody playing a prank. People, you know, I'm not. We're not attributing everything to unexplained phenomena because they had started telling people about this. Yeah, uh, you know, so somebody somebody might have thought, like, yeah, let's wind these guys up a little bit. I don't know. Uh, they'd not entered at that, but they'd, so they came out to the vehicles one night, and there's huge animal prints from the back of the car, over the roof, on the bonnet. Bipedal prints, which kind of don't make sense, but the, but it's all mixed in with the with the sort of I don't know this sort of ba bathing of paranormal activity that were taking place, and uh, everything's starting to get thrown thrown around. Like I said, nobody ever saw anything actually move. So during 1997, Steve, because there's a large holding area for cars and buses and lorries at the back and a bit more scrubland behind that, Steve rented some of that land off to a guy who wanted to break caravans up and sell parts, kind of, you know, a caravan scrapyard, for want of a better word, and he rented some land off. And there were a guy who used to sleep in one of the caravans. Well, whilst they're clearing this land off and preparing it, making it sort of suitable for the job, they found a grave. They found and a wooden grave marker. Imagine about 24 inch high, 15 inch wide, with the inscription of a little girl. They, they, none of them remember the name or the year, but they think it was the 1800s and they've got this wooden grave marker. Mm -hmm. And they kind of said they, 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 they didn't treat it with the respect it deserved 
but I don't think they'd treat it with any disrespect. But do you know what I mean? It's yeah. it, to me, it's important if somebody's if there's somebody buried there potentially. So they brought it into the workshop. They attributed everything that had happened before to the spirit of the little girl that like some kind of poltergeist activity. Instantly, they'd got something to focus on, and whether it was or not, I have no idea. But uh, they, they even contacted the local church. I've since contacted the church and the undertakers because they know that the church or the undertakers came and took the, the marker away. Uh, they've, they've no knowledge of the, of it, the people that I've spoken to at Hummerby Church or the undertakers. But, I mean, like we've said, there's a lot of time elapsed. So the, also, they also because all three lived in Bridlington, so at some point they've got to drive to Hummerby. All of them talk about seeing, on occasion, huge flashes of light, just literally split-second light where the land just lights up today. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced, <coughs> excuse me, experienced that, Andy, but we have up at Bempton, funnily enough. Just literally a blink and everything's daylight. I don't know what kind of energy source can do that, but we know that sheet lightning could do it. But they'd all talk about experiencing that. Not sure if that's connected. Do you know, uh, just just on that yet, once I remember in Glasgow, uh, I was playing football one night. I'd say I was maybe 13, 14 kind of age. Uh, if anyone knows the area, Drum Chapel, near near kind of where I stayed in the west end of Glasgow. And um, I remember it being a very clear sky, not really any clouds at all about, and there was just a big flash in the sky. And it was nighttime, so, you know, it shouldn't have been... Uh, like you say, almost like someone camera flash up in the cl- up in the sky, yeah. bright gone. That was it. And I remember just looking about for a, just a couple of seconds. I was myself, yeah. and yeah, that was really strange. That was odd. But what can you do? Like you know, that's well, it. you can't because there's, there's. I doubt it's been documented. I mean, it may have been picked up on CCTV or something. We all cameras we've got now, but who can say? So we've got these flashes, these unusual flashes over these this three year period. Dave, the younger one, when we, when we sat and spoke, because I've spoke to them all, I've spoke to Andrew more than the other two, I've spoke to Dave and I've spoke to the boss, Steve, as we've called him. Dave said that I've also got memories of driving to the unit, but I've no memories, and seeing these flashes of light, but I've no memories of actually working there. I've just got memories of driving back. And it doesn't mean like he's got lots of these, but he's, he's, he's just aware of it. It's a niggling little thing that... that that's kind of stayed with him. And his mum and dad were coming throughout this period of time because I think that this is important because as we progress through Hummanby, you'll, you, well, you will see why. So this started, this, in the end, they stopped telling people about what was happening. It were interesting at first. It were kind of edgy and, and exciting when things happened, but obviously they started to get a bit of a ridicule that got at local builders, not builders, merchants, suppliers for the car components and things. Yeah. And, you know, they were getting a little bit of stick for, for what were happening. So nobody believed them, basically. Uh, and I, as I say, I spoke to the guys at the bus depot probably about two or three years ago, and there's one old chap that still works there who remembers it. So uh, one occasion they sat in front of a... We will get to the UFO people, I would promise you. <laughs> but there's, I think we just need to build up. One occasion, they're all sat in. There's three of them sat in the front of a, a motorway pickup truck, one that they're planning on doing some work on. And the owner of the truck is telling them, I suppose, what he wants. He wants his sign writing and this and that. And suddenly, 
there's cracks on the side of the building, inside, not on the outside. So he asks what it is. This is the kind of thing they were telling people. They said, they just jokingly said, it's the poltergeist. This guy just looks at them. They don't lose business through it, but, you know, and that's how the word got ha- got out. There's, there's another ridiculous example that they had an MG Roadster in for some work and they're all doing their jobs and it started on its own. He said, we're all just mesmerised. There's no one else in the unit, and this car's started up. The keys are in it, but it's started, and it's just not possible, as you know. Steve, the boss, walks over to it, turns off the engine, or tries to, takes the keys out. He says it's still running. They pull the bonnet and just move the pull the plug leads, and the thing stops. And I know there's going to be people listening to this and saying, well... That's just a load of rubbish, for want of a better word. And uh, But this is what I'm told. All three men have told me this story of the MG Roadster. He says, we were kind of shocked. Got there another morning, and the guy who lives, the, the guy who breaks caravans in the back of the, at the back of the units, there's somebody sleeps there, and he's having an argument with Steve. They said, we, not morning, this will be evening. He says, we get to do our job. He said, this guy's arguing. And there's the vehicles that are parked at the back of the compound, and he's telling him that the radios are coming on on the night in during the night. The horns are beeping, and he's moaning at Steve and saying, like, you know, the, the your responsibility. This needs to stop. And in, he pulled the bonnets. They're taking batteries out to stop people, you know, to stop people uh, obviously stealing the batteries. So it, it fell out with this guy. And there's no batteries in. And obviously, no explanation for 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 what were happening with this sort of paranormal coating that's sort of it's everywhere with around this unit. Once again, 1997, everything seemed to come to a stop. Carried on as normal. We get to June 1998. Now, just also need to note that June, through writing the Truth Proof books, Andy. I've highlighted that June seems to come up in a lot of sightings and experiences along the eastern North yeah. Yorkshire coast. You know, you know, we've got, we've got aircraft that have gone down in June. We know these are tragedies, and we 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 should we, we we're not attributing them to UFO phenomena or anything, but it's worth noting. So June nineteen ninety eight, the these they still sort of I don't know contemplating now whether it's all going to start again, and it, it does begin. And they're believing that the the headstone, the grave marker, is somehow responsible, just like the previous years. The washers are flying about. But now they're getting money. Old money and foreign coins are dropping as they're walking about in front of them. Gravel is falling in front of them. Remember, there's no second floor on, uh, first floor on this unit. It's just a ground floor. The only, the only elevated building is the tiny office in the bottom right-hand corner. So there's nobody up there leaning over and dropping things. And uh, the radio would suddenly go very loud and start changing channels. And, I mean, it could be a faulty radio. I don't know. But all of these things are happening. So on top of the washers flying about, the steel washers, excuse me, the nuts and bolts and the coffee jars that are dropping in front of them and painting lids, we've got money. And they decided to put the grave marker outside. So they lent it outside the, uh, the back of the shutter doors. And whilst they're working away, they hear what they perceive was 
somebody the sound almost like somebody using a baseball bat to hit the huge shutter doors bang 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 and they go to investigate what's happening because the, obviously these doors are shut and the grave markers inside all three men it, it, swear that they never brought it in and all three men have told me this story and and there's a lot of things that connected to it that they, that they could have really omitted because it doesn't bring loads of valid, va, validation to a UFO story, mm. but they're, they're saying it. And I think I'd be, I'm not going to cherry pick just to make it fit a UFO landing. I'm, I'm going to give people the, the full story of what people told me because there's too many people want to just, just let's just make it fit that narrative. Let's just unfold it, and I hope people can bear with me long enough because it does, you know, it it it's, it does get interesting. So the grave markers now moved allegedly from in, outside to inside. There's another time Andrew's working on an open-topped bus that's in the unit. Suddenly, all of the lights go bright in the unit, and it, it, as the lights burst and the power goes out because some of the bulbs burst, a strip light in the top up in the ceiling, dropped into the top of the open-top bus. Could be just coincidence, but interesting. And interestingly enough, power's gone. The radio continues to play. As I say, I called the church. I spoke to the undertakers because they don't know whether it were the church or the undertakers that came and took the grave marker away. But all three men say that, you know, in the end they did because they wanted they, they thought this was ghostly activity, poltergeist-type activity. So I, they told me that they thought it had been buried in grounds of Hummonby Church, but I've 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 spoke at length. I've been to Hummonby Church. I've looked for any indication of it. There's I can't find nothing, and I did make considerable inquiries. So we've got all types of unexplained phenomena presenting. Is was it a poltergeist, or 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 did the phenomena sort of allow many types of unexplained phenomena to present, or was it one thing? A trickster kind of element. I, I don't. I, I really don't know. All, everything seems detached from from the other. You know, the the, the footprints on a car, the, the the gravel falling, the money falling. So anyway, Steve's the only one there on one particular night. The others, the two who work for him, have gone home, and he's locking up in the early hours of the morning. And back then, like I said, there's only three or four units down there, and it's pretty. It's on Edgett Village now. It's pretty remote now, but he said, uh, just bolting, get, uh, locking the gates, he said, and I turned round, he said, and just went back to the fence. He said, and in the darkness, but close to me, there's a huge figure. And he said that we're looking like seven or eight foot tall, black shape, huge head, huge shoulders. Once again, don't conform to a, to what we t what people would typically expect of what with the hum and be landing. He said, now just... Took a huge breath, gasped. He said, I, "I can't see eyes. I can't see anything." I just—he said he just turned away and walked into darkness. Another strange occurrence that probably a lot of UFO researchers would omit and get to the let's get to the UFO because that's all we want to deal with. But you know, it, I think there's a lot of cases that have cherry picked, and we're probably missing important details by not cut talking about these kind of things as well. Just a quick advert now from our sponsor, Paper Lake. 
And I just want to mention, folks, it really has made using my iPad a whole lot more fun. I was never a fan of using my Apple Pencil and sketching or drawing or even writing my notes right onto the screen. It's made a huge world of difference. Every paper-like has a little bit of magic engineered into its surface with nanodot technology. These microbeads are distributed across the screen protector and make Apple Pencils vibrate ever so slightly so it feels like you're writing on paper. They're specially designed so that the display light shines around and through them to minimise any refraction, so unlike other screen protectors, Paperlike will never spoil your view. Paperlike's perfect for anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil, which I know a lot of you do. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need to. And remember, like I've said before, folk, I am certainly no artist, but my kids certainly approve of using it, and it has kept the screen in perfect condition. I'm a real stickler for that. They can draw and doodle, and I have peace of mind. The screen underneath is completely protected. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO, click buy Paperlike and select your iPad size. If you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO to get started. Well, let me say, Paul, just before you go on, a a lot of what you have talked about, if people are familiar with Skinwalker Ranch, sounds like it's right out of those early investigations with the NIDS team and Bob Bigelow, because they talked about paranormal activity. Brandon Fugel, the owner now, and and the crew and cast that are involved talk about things being moved about. It's not just the UFOs. You know, they've talked about portals opening up, creatures crawling out, strange wolf-type creatures, you know. Again, not classic UFO stuff. But all activity that has gone on around what is, you know, largely considered a paranormal hotbed when it comes to activity. And I know some people hate using the term paranormal in maybe a derogatory way, but it's just it's just potentially a normal that we don't understand yet. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that eventually, Andy, science is going to understand all of these things. It still might take us into the realms of the woo, but it but 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 science probably will catch up. I don't mean catch up fully, although it might do, but I think it's going to, you know, it's, it's. I don't think it's hot on the heels of whatever it is that's presenting, mm. but we're, we're getting more and more sort of insights into what's happening. Can, so, I, can I add one more, one more thing? Yeah, Sorry, just Paul. fire away. And if anyone's noticed, if they're watching this on YouTube, I've been making some notes at the side just while you've been talking. Uh-huh. And I actually drew a sketch very quickly of the area just to remind myself as well when I'm, when I'm doing it. Um, was there any correlating events? We're looking at 96, 97, 98, June to August each time in or around that area that yeah. were maybe similar? Yes. Oh, d- definitely. Definitely. And and, and as I'd, like I said, I've made some notes. And as I've come through to the end of it, I don't know what time we've got. I'm going to sort of in- include yeah. a few correlating events. So it's no, great, be great that you've, yeah. you've been a forethought there. Thank you. And uh, so... When in 1998, June, July, and August, everything seems to cul- culminate. Cul- come on, help me. <laughs> cul- culminate. That's culminate. Yeah. yeah, in, in August. And uh, yeah, I'm good with words, aren't I? So Andrew starts getting clever with the phenomena. Starts getting cocky. It's it's become almost a normality that things are happening. Dave's mum and dad's experiencing them. They're all experiencing it, and it's, this isn't like when we are going to Bempton and we're looking for signs of unexplained phenomena and we might just get a hit on something in six months or a year. Incidentally, we did get a hit on something this Tuesday, an absolutely incredible sighting, which I've got a bit of stuff on film. But this that's rare. This is happening every week. This is happening on a regular basis. So Dave's asking 
Give me some money that I can spend if you're all so powerful. And he's shouting at it. He's shouting into the workshop. Give me the lottery numbers if you're all so powerful. And Steve's warning him, the boss, stop taunting it. You don't know what you're dealing with. Stop, you know, sort of maybe aggravating the phenomena. I don't think they were calling it phenomena, but uh, stop aggravating it. And I think Andrew, uh, sorry, David echoed the same words. And uh, but he won't, he won't stop. It's annoying him when they hear a crack of a washer and it drops. He's shouting out as though he's he, he's just sick of it. That, that's Andrew's words. I say because I've got extensive recordings, voice recordings of of, of Dave and Andrew. I've none of Steve, uh, but that's his words. He says we we just became sick of it in the end. It, it, you know, it always took you by surprise. You never knew when it was going to happen. But when it happened, you kind of jumped, and then you, as it, I used to just curse it. I used to just swear at it and ask it to give me some, like we said, the lottery mon- numbers, give me some money I can spend. He said, and then suddenly, this is what Dave and Steve said to me. He said, we, we heard a scream, and we looked, and there's Andrew spinning round on the floor, holding his head, saying, I've been hit, I've been hit. He says, and we, we're kind of thinking, what, what's gone off here? He says, and he took his hands away, and there's a coin like stuck to his forehead. I asked if it were hot. Andrew said it weren't hot. So he took it away, and there's a there's a round circle, which didn't go away in half an hour. It stayed in a round circle on his head for a day or two. So I spoke to Andrew about it because they told me this, and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah." He said, "I he said I've been like getting clever with it, whatever it was." He says, "And I just looked up." He said, "And the strange thing was," he said, "it was coming to me in slow motion." He says, but I could see full circle, not the side. Yeah. He said, it just hit me in head. He said, it stung like mad. And he says, and I just grabbed my head and I like, screamed out in pain. He said, and that, basically, that's that's what happened So for, for taunting the, the phenomena. So we're now at, almost at the end of August. So we're probably getting to what your UFO people, listeners want to hear about. So the triangles appeared. This is this is August 1998. There's one night in August 1998. Steve, the boss, he stood outside having a cigarette with a couple of guys from the uh, the bre- bus breakers or the bus restorers. I don't know what it was back then. I beat when I went down to it. You can see old type coaches in there even today. So I don't. I, obviously, they, they either sell parts or restore coaches, and they're having a cigarette. And I think this guy who's passed away, Alan, was there as well. And as they as they stood outside, just unpolluted sky, only three or four units there, two and a half miles looking forward, you're going to be in the North Sea, you're going to, you're going to be at Hummonby Gap. So then we're looking out to sea, they can't see the sea, they're in a bit of a dip. He said, in Starfield night, and I become aware of three huge black triangle shapes, no lights on them, coming towards us, blocking out all the stars, he said, they're not that high in the sky, but they're huge, monstrously huge. Everybody's looking at it, back from Andrew and Dave who are inside working, but he says, we're watching these things coming over. We're just, get, we're just jaws have dropped. He says, I can't believe it. And just before they get over the top of us and the solid black shapes that are totally silent, no lights, and we think we're going to get a fabulous view as they actually get over the top, they've gone. Whether they've camouflage themselves, whether they be, become aware and it's some stealth technology that can... I don't know, I talk in Truth Proof 1 about the intermind connection. 
where people, I don't know, see, there's a rock angler's perfect example, Andrew, just to draw from this for a moment, where he's on the clifftops and he, he sees what he perceives to be an unusually bright star out over the sea. One that he doesn't recognise. He think, oh, I've never seen that one. He's, he said, no sooner had I looked at this, what I thought were a bright star, than it's above my head. He said, and obviously not a star. He says, and the ground's lit up like like a welder's kind of intensity. All the blades of grass look sharp silver. And then as fast as it's arrived, it's gone. The intermind connection, I think some kind of connection there had taken place. So this thing, they got over top of them and it simply vanished. That, this is all around the time that this incident happened. They talked about it. They were talking quite excitedly when he went into the workshop about I've just seen these two sorry these three huge triangles I don't know what time amount of time elapsed whether it were the next day or whether it were during that week but it's all very close and Dave there's a bit of confusion whether Dave's mum and dad had gone home and then come back after something that happened which we will get to or whether they were actually arriving to the to the to see their son and the other the other guys, and because they always went home apparently in between eight o'clock and ten o'clock. So we think we, these guys they're not sure of the exact times. So Dave and Dad are involved in in what happened next. They won't speak about it. Uh, Dave approached his mum to see if she would talk to me, and he said, and "She's a few a few." He said, apart from a few days after what happened to them, they've never, they'll not speak about it to the point of being quite upset yeah. and cross. Sure. So they, they all saw something incredible. So, so we'll go through Andrew, Dave and Steve as, as, as I interviewed them all separately. And Andrew says, on this particular night, this is after the triangles, a few nights passed. He said, the roller shutter doors are up about six or seven foot and we can see down into the compound. A few cars in, but it's not it's not over full. He says, and, uh, I found myself stood at the doors at the bottom of the compound, looking down. He said, and I can't. He said, I'm, I don't know, probably thirty yards away. He said, and I can see mist, about four foot off the ground. And he 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 used the it covered the area. He said of a, of a flat back truck one that you'd everybody may imagine where you could put a car on and drive off with if, if you've had a breakdown that that kind of size flat back pickup truck and typical mechanic type guys to give you that example isn't it but that's what they do he said i can't believe what i'm looking at he says and first of all he said i can hear helicopters but i don't think they're helicopters because it's bright and i can't see anything it's bright night clear night and i can't see anything above me but i can hear this sound and I'm, I'm attributing it to helicopters, but it doesn't actually sound like an helicopter. It's like a humming. So we've got that one. So he said, I'm looking down the compound, and he's, and this is where he gets all weird when I'm sat in Andrew's kitchen and he's telling me this. He said, it can't have been true. He said, I think it were a film set. He said, he said there's, there's a, what, above the mist, there's what you would call a typical 1960s flying saucer. He says, and... There's like a glass dome on it. And there's this little, and I can see Andrew saying it to me now, and he says, there's this little thing inside it. I can see it's black outline, and it's looking or moving about. He said, I can see it. He said, and, and all the time Andrew's saying to me, he says, it's got to have been a film set. He said, it just, I'd never, it was so surreal. I've never seen all like it. He says, and there's, there's lights flashing in the mist and all sorts of strange 
electrical cracks and this thing's there. Then it gets weird. He said, because then I find myself walking through the unit to the front and not the double, not the roller shutters that are there shut, the side door. He says, and I opened the side door. I think he said he was looking for Steve, which will be that. They just go back, draw back a bit, people. He said, I saw Steve walking down to the mist and he disappeared into mist. So now, and he said, I'm kind of really confused. He said, now, I, I, I found myself walking to the front, but I'm looking for Steve. Probably it could be that he can't believe what he's just seen and he thinks, is he up here? I don't know. Mm. He said, and I opened the side door. He said, and uh, I, I, a soldier, one soldier dressed in black from head to toe, armed, grabs hold of him, drags him inside, swearing and cursing at him, drops him to the floor, tells him to stay where he is, don't move on, a few choice words, and if you know what's good for you kind of thing. Yeah. He says, and I did that. He says, I was frightened. He says, he were a real nasty piece of work. Or That's what he appeared. Full, no face showing, everything's black. Yeah. So... Next, I speak to uh, just do, just move a bit of paper here, people. Next, I speak to Andrew on his own. I spoke to them all on their own, and I, and I need to stress as well that there's in the years that have passed, Andrew and Dave have kept in touch, but not as regular weekly friends or even monthly friends. And Steve, we had to we had to search for Steve. You, do you know what I mean? So it's not like they've all got together and put their heads together. I mean, these guys now are in the sixties. Uh, well, Dave will be in his late 40s. So I asked Andrew, basically, I didn't want I didn't want to lead him, but I just we'd gone through the story. He'd just about give me everything that I've described to you guys today, to the even to the 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 light that fell into the open top bus, everything. He'd give me a carbon copy of what Andrew had said, really. And and I said, well, what about this object that Andrew's seen in the mist? He said, well, he said, I've, I was stood looking out of the workshop down onto the compound. But none of them say they were stood together, which I find fascinating. But he, he, he said, um, and I, I'll, he, he, he said, I'll give you that. He said, there was something there. He said, I couldn't see what Andrew's talking about, this classic 1960s flying sorcery. He said, but there's an object there. And... It's behind this mist, he said, and the, the electrical bangs and cracks and flashes like a welder's torch are all around it. And I, I said, well, Andrew spoke about seeing a being inside it in a glass dome. Well, he went, well, I saw three of them. He said, but they were outside it. He said, he's over six foot or about six foot, Is uh, Andrew. He said, they were taller than me. He said they'd got large heads. He said, and if he said I could only see a black outline of them. He said, but if they'd got clothes on, it was something like a wetsuit. He said it were just they were just nothing to, discernible, you know, apart from the shape. So we got that from Andrew. Uh, so then Andrew decides he's going to walk to the front of the building, and Andrew says I could hear what I thought were helicopters. On reflection, I'm thinking they don't sound like helicopters. But we just—I think that's the natural thing that we all do as humans. We're drawing comparisons to closest thing we can think of, yeah. uh, you know. So he said that he's humming. So he walks to the front of the building, opens the door. There's two soldiers waiting for him, armed. Well, the, the, the not necessarily waiting for Andrew, but they're there. Yeah. 
drag him inside the same procedure, drops him to the floor, threatens him, frightens him to death. Stay where you are. Once again, I've got no story of they put me with Andrew. With they put me with Andrew. Dave does not say they put me with Andrew. They don't. They, they, it's almost as though they've they've forgot that they're with each other during the during this experience as you know it were, it were interesting listening to him so then i get to speak to uh uh, uh steve apologies people as i spoke to steve i've just in front of myself on my notes there and um i kept the story of him walking down to into the mist till the last thing because I didn't know what I was going to get out of this guy. I've, I, we, we dis- I spoke to him on the phone, first of all, and uh, he was really upset that I was speaking to him and always told you this shouldn't be spoken about. And this is genuine. This I'm not I'm not even exaggerating how, how upset this guy was that I was speaking to him. If I'd have hit him in the face with a shovel, it was absolutely gobsmacked that anybody were talking about it. So... When he realised that, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know, I weren't going to disclose his name and I just wanted the information and I wanted to know if he'd verify what uh, what Andrew and David said, things calmed down and I spoke to him probably for about an hour. I had another conversation with him for probably longer and he, he were asking me if I were recording him as well, which I wasn't. And uh, I subsequently found out where about he were based. So rather than just force myself on him, I, I passed one day and I dropped a copy at first book through letterbox uh, of, a, of a premises, not of a home. So I left it a couple of weeks and I went in, opened the door of this place. It's empty. There's, there's no, if I said where it was and I said what were in it, people would instantly know where this place was. So it, it, it's, it's, it's not, I don't mean it's empty of items, but it's empty. There's no, there's no customers in and I'm, I shout hello kind of thing and I could, somebody's work in the basement he says I'll be two minutes and then I'll, sure enough two minutes later this guy comes upstairs I uh, didn't know me obviously so I explained who I was and he, he pulled a chair up he says sit down so I, I ended up having a, this very long conversation you know few hour conversation with this guy and I'd love to talk to him again if he gets to listen to this uh, you know I, I do want to talk to you again there's more that I want to ask. So it basically gave me a carbon copy of what happened. He found himself stood looking down the compound. He can see an object in the mist. He doesn't know what it is. We're not going to say a spaceship. But, you know, Andrew was the only one that said classic flying saucer. There's an object there. So I don't know what it is. He says, and I don't really want to know what it is. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And I said, well, Andrew said he saw this being in the in a dome, sat in this thing. Dave said he saw three beings. Steve goes, I saw one. There was one. He said, and I didn't see its head. I could just see up to the shoulders It's because there's mist all around it. It's a very thin, very strange-looking thing. So I, I kind of kept my, less, my last question. I said, well, Andrew said at one point he saw you walking down into the mist and you just dis- disappeared into the mist, and he, he said... I, I have no recollection of that, none at all. And, you know, I, I, sorry, I can't help you. So that's basically where we're at. We haven't done yet, but that's that's their sightings. Oh, he walks to the front of the building. There's guys with 
opens the door. Military personnel in black, head to toe. There must have been different because we got three different weapons. Because we've got handguns, we've got we've just got sta- standard military guns, and we've got machine guns, which I'm assuming are MP5s for that era. And uh, they drop him to the floor, threaten him, shake him about a bit. Is not to go anywhere. Stay where you are if you know what's good for you. See, and jumping back to Andrew, Andrew thought all oh, that was staged for him, and he thought the true UFO event were happening at the front. He still can't, can't wrap his head around what he saw. All these years later, you know, we're back from 1998. So, Can I just ask, Paul? What, yeah, you please know, do. Because that's fascinating stuff so far. Listen, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, and I'm trying to wrap my head around some of the some of the statements as well. From Steve's point of view, when you go in and speak to him, and obviously he was reluctant, but he, he sits you down and has that conversation. Do you believe that he doesn't remember walking into the mist? I don't know. That's as good as I can tell you. I don't know, Andy. I really don't know. Uh, maybe one, maybe somebody there were a little bit more aware of what were happening than than some of the others. That's all I will say. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a lot more to this story. I mean, I've, we've got a, one more witness, not necessarily attached to that compound, but there's a witness come forward, and uh, it, it, it's a mind-boggling kind of set of scenarios that took place over that three-year period. And there's probably more to, more to say that I can't say at the moment. Let's put it that way. So, and that's not me just lying to people. That's just things that I'm just sort of bound that I can't talk about at the moment. So we've got Steve's story and we've we've got the gist that all three men have been detained and sort of roughed up a bit for trying to act. Uh, leave the front of the building or open that side door at the front. As a, They're detained, we'll not say well, for, for what period of time, like an hour, two hours, 30 minutes, I don't know. But when it all ends, Dave's mum and dad arrive. Mum's crying. Mum's in a right distressed state. Dad's frightened. And, you know, if Dave, what would he have been? He'd have been in his 20s, early 20s. So mum and dad would have been in the 40s, 50s, maybe back then. <clears throat> so they're not elderly. I hope not anyway, because I'm 60. <laughs> just, no, but you know what I mean. So, yeah, sure. Frightened. So they get this is before they've spoke about, God, you're not going to believe what's just happened, what we've just experienced. They said they're driving. Now, this is the bit we can't get, whether they're driving home and this happened to them, or whether they were driving to meet Son and them too. This is what I touched on earlier. But, but just gather the story. As they're driving, and we believe that it's on the way home and they came back, uh, because they, they can't remember times. As they're driving, they just get between... Anybody wants to Google Earth these locations, people? They're not busy metropolises. They're in the middle of nowhere, so you, you will easily find these roads. So if you find the road going out of Hunmanby and head towards Bridlington, they're on, they're on that road. And we, I, I'm thinking that they're near the Dottrell Roundabout, probably half a mile in front of the Dottrell Roundabout. There's a pub there called the Dottrell, and it was called that back in the day. And there's a roadblock set up. They're stopped. There's no cars on road. No, there's nothing happening. It's, it's quiet. It's quiet now on a night, so it's going to be back in the 1990s. No military vans, they're all black. So there's black vehicles. Armed personnel come to the side of the car. They bundle mum out. They bundle dad out. Drag them into a van. 
Inside the van, there's military personnel dressed in black, head to toe, armed. You'd speak about nothing that you're told, nothing that you've seen. Then they gave, they proceeded to give them a breakdown of who their family were, where they lived. Lots and lots of things that they knew that I don't, strangers shouldn't have known. Basically frightened them to death and let them go. And they came and obviously spilled that story before anybody had a chance to talk about the UFO. And uh, we've kind of... We've, we've well, we've got through Humanbay, which probably took what is it, half an hour, an hour? I don't know, but uh, you've got the gist of it. But you touched on earlier, Andrew. Unless you want to ask any questions before we get to a few other things that happened in that year. Uh, so I'd asked about the story. Oh, so I was going to ask: Were there any parts of any of the stories when you were talking to them that you did question? Was there I, anything? I I think I questioned everything. Let me say though, Paul, because I don't want this to come across the wrong way. No, not that you thought they were maybe lying directly, but either they were they were adding details in to protect themselves or each other, or maybe something like that. Or maybe you did think actually that's not true, and you know it's not true, but they were telling you it anyway. So I'm just curious on that. I I don't want to sound like I'm naive and gullible because, as like yourself, you've spoke to lots of people, and I think I've spoke to hundreds of people over years. I've believed they were telling me truth, but I do believe that things were being held back from me. Well, no, I don't believe things were being held back from me. I know things were being held back from me. There's a lot more to Humanby than what you guys have just got, and uh, whether I get to it, whether I whether I manage to unearth it, if if I unearthed it now and spoke about it now, I would upset people because I'd be talking about truths that I've been asked. I've not Everything I've spoke about is the truth as I've been told it, but there's more in between it all that I've been asked to keep out of it. I know it's, it sounds all crypt, cryptic, not cryptid, but, you know, I know, it, I, I know how that must sound, but I've, I've just got to respect people who've asked me not to talk about certain aspects of, of what took place. Uh, so I've not bent the story in any way, but there are elements that make it even more exciting, I'll be honest with you. And and that's what it is. It's exciting and, and frightening. And uh, you asked earlier about other things that occurred around that same yeah. time frame. Well, in 2019, myself and Bob Brown were on the clifftops at Bempton. I sound like a, a broken record, I know, but we were trying to film these lights. And there's we can all we think only thing we can see, Andy, in the distance about a mile away is the headlight of one fisherman. And uh, this will relate to Humanby in a moment, people. So I we're observing him and there's nothing happening. I've got a camera set up and it's all sort of covered because of moisture in air and a amount of time passed and he's walking towards us. We can I can see his headlight moving and he's coming towards us in darkness. Well, I don't put lights on everywhere, so he wouldn't have been aware we were there even, uh, apart from setting up and that's then I switch everything off. And uh, I said to Bob, I said, when he gets closer, I'm going to put a light on because I don't want to startle him. We're on edge of three to 400 foot cliffs, aren't we? I don't think he's just going to jump off him, but I don't want to startle him. So I did just that. So he draws up alongside me and there's this old fisherman, Mick Sigson, they call him. That's his real name. Everybody calls him Siggy, which I know now. So, um, what are you doing, lads? And I told him, and he went, he'd heard about me before being up there from other rock anglers and other people. And I said, have you, have you managed, 
catch any fish, bit of I, sort of small talk, and then I asked him if he'd seen anything unusual whilst fishing these cliff tops. And he explained that this coming year, this back in 2019, so you can get an idea of his age, he said he'd fished the rock, the cliffs of Bempton and Flamborough for 50 years. He said, and, uh, I've, he said, I've seen all sorts. He says, I've, I've seen, I've heard all sorts of unearthly things around that old RAF base, or, you know, which is about, I don't know, a mile further up than where we were. He said, and uh, I asked him about the light forms, these spheres of light, and he said he'd never seen them, which I found fascinating for somebody that had fished there, because that's primarily what people are seeing. Yeah. But he said, Brian, I have seen a spaceship. I said, when? Oh, what, what's this about? He says, and he turned around, he says, that hill there. He said, it landed on that hill. I said, really? So as he's talking, I knew I'd already heard the story, but from the son of one of the rock anglers who was with him that night. Mm-hmm. And I don't tend to use them. That, that that's We know that all we're dealing with, Andy, in a lot of instances is anecdotal evidence, but I prefer first-hand accounts to a friend of a friend said this. Yeah, this I, I want it you. from the horse's mouth. So I'd noted that uh, this guy had told me his dad saw this UFO and, and ran away that night during a fishing match. So... He, he proceeded to tell me, he said, well, he said it was 1998, he said, and it was November, and it was a club match, I think, in Filey Fishing Club, which is still in now. <laughs> it's, just, it's nuts, isn't it? And uh, he said, we're up there fishing, it's it's a clear night, it's a November, cold November evening, and I think there were six or seven men up there. Now, it's not like fishing around a pond, people, when you do cliff top fishing. You might be there, you'll see a headlight, and you might see another one half a mile down cliffs and another one two miles down cliffs. That's how it is because these places, there's not they're not all accessible to just cast your rod and your line out down a two, down a three to four hundred foot cliff. Imagine that and then you've got to catch a fish and get it up and the sheer. So he said, I'm fishing. He said, and I don't know whether I saw, heard or saw other anglers sort of moving about and their heads moving or whether I caught a glimpse of it myself. So, but I turned round, he said, and on the hill, I suddenly thought, what's a, what's a combined harvester doing up there at this time of night? At this time of year, apologies, people. So then I realised I can see the hill and I can see a gap of sky between the hill and the object. So hold on, it's about 30 foot in air, this bloody thing. And there's nothing behind the hill but farmland. You know, I know the area really well. No properties, nothing that could be lit up that you would mistake. He said, and then it starts to come down. He said, and as it gets closer to the, and it's all yellows, whites, and oranges, this this thing with lights revolving around it. As it gets closer to the ground, all sparks are coming off the ground. And when it lands, there's a circle of flames around it, and it's on the floor. Then it says, oh, I just packed my gear together, what I could. And I, I got off cliff tops. He says, and other guys were moving that were inside of it. And that ends with the son of the father who were with him that night. I confirmed it with Mick. You know, we, we got the name of this guy. And he'd done a runner and he left his fishing tackle on the cliff tops and just ran off. So so that was that sighting. A few months before, June and July, um, I'll just move these forwards, please. Uh, June and July, uh, I would, I'd been looking through archives of the lifeboat station at Bridlington. Uh, one of the staff there were kindly let me sort of look for certain years. And basically, well, based on 1998, I wanted to look if anything had happened. So I found out on 15th of June, 
um, love to get your actual name at aircraft. Well, not it were a tornado, but tornado Z E seven. I can't see, it, but I think it was Z E seven two three. And if it's seven three two people, I, I apologise. But you know, so flying ten to fifteen miles off Bempton and Flamborough vanished off radar. Bearing in mind, there's no mystery of it vanishing off radar. It's probably gone below radar and, uh, and crashed into North Sea June the fifteenth. Now, the UFO researchers of the day, Andy, made a lot of this. I didn't know them. I know who they are now, but, I, you know, I weren't involved in any of that and talking about it being UFO-related. Now, I've got no I've got no information to say it was UFO-related. I just think it's worth, worth, worth noting. I wish I could just move these bits of paper. And uh, so during the course of that, a few days before ZE-723 crashed, I saw in the log of the lifeboat station, it said object. And uh, <clears throat> basically the log said, uh, Ormsey Coast Guard, Bridlington Coast Guard, tasked to investigate a large black object that has seemed to fall from the sky. We're talking about this in, this in a suitcase falling from a, somebody's bedroom window. This is over the North Sea. It's about four to six miles out of, of Bridlington and Flamborough. Land on the surface of the sea can be seen for a short time. And the, now lifeboats went out to investigate. Nothing to be found. And they called it objects. Now, I put a freedom of information request in to MCA, Maritime Coast Guard Agency. And they were really unhelpful. They, they, don't, they don't have records for going back that far, which we know they do. But that's basically what I got told. Unfortunately, I'd already seen it as a live logging lifeboat station. So kindly, I, I, I didn't really have to put a freedom information request into Lifeboat, but I did, and they gave it me. So I got the log, which the Coast Guard agency said don't doesn't exist. So that's in book two. That's in Truth Proof Two Beyond the Thinking Mind. That's there. Uh, unfortunately, though, when I got the log, the word object had been removed. But that was too late. I'd seen it, so I've not added it for sensationalism. It was definitely there when I looked at it. You know. Mm -hmm. So, so we got that strange UFO occurrence back in uh, June, July of 1998, or definitely a UFO. It was unidentified that, that landed on the surface of the sea. Whether ZE-723 were UFO-related, I don't know. That during 1998, over the North Sea, the, the newspapers reported of a UFO the size of a battleship uh, being pursued by aircraft, there was a bit of debate whether it was sensationalism as as regard and, and a genuine story. I don't know whether it was or it wasn't. I think it was the, the the Daily Telegraph that reported it. If I've got the wrong paper, I apologise. But you know there was a big article about it. Um, so then jumping back to Mick Sigson, because what I didn't say at the time when Mick told us this story, I asked him if we could film him would he be willing to come on film and talk about this spaceship that landed on the clifftops and he said he would so myself and bob brown picked him up one evening took some strong lighting with us and i got him set up on the clifftop roughly where he was fishing with the hill in the background and he gave us the story bearing in mind he'd never seen these spheres of light which i call the ilfs intelligent light forms because i believe there's an awareness to them just like Potentially, just like the Foo Fighters, mm. these these whether it's some kind of secret technology that that we don't know about, man-made, but if it is, it's not advanced 
Andy. It's not advanced since the war. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The Brown Mountain Lights. We're all we're dealing with this sort of strange aerial phenomena that seems to appear at will and disappear at will. So he'd not seen them. So we'd done this little interview. He told us the story. I pack the camera away. I start packing the lights away. And I just look up and there's two above us. I don't know how far. They're definitely a couple of thousand feet up, but the big, bright, like tangerines in the sky, silent, not flown from anywhere. I said, look at that, the lights. And Bob saw them, Mick saw them, straight down from my camera, switched off. Stand there like a fool for 10 minutes with camera. Come on, you know, nothing. Put the camera away, they're there again. Same, same formation, kind of at 4 o'clock and 12 o'clock. So get camera out again, nothing. So we walk home. We, you know, we'd, we'd picked Mick up. We walk along the cliff tops and we take him home. Uh, midpoint, they come on again. Don't bother getting camera out. They go off. I don't know, another half a mile down. They come on again. We dropped him off and myself and Bob came back. There was nothing at all that night. You know, so will that pure coincidence? I've no idea. I mean, Mick said he'd never, ever seen them before. So, excuse me, 12th of June, I've just got to this log now. The 12th of June was uh, when the object was seen. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, to descend from the sky and land on the surface of the sea. Uh, and let's have a look. Uh, Zeddy, 15th of June. Uh, 12th of July, people, sorry. 12th of July, the object was seen. And the 15th of June is when... Zeddy, uh, and I did get it right, didn't I? 732 crashed off Flamborough and Bempton. Interestingly, 2020, the F-15 Sea Eagle crashed off Flamborough and Bempton, 15th of June. Interestingly, I don't know whether we even touched on this when we did the podcast, I don't know, a, a few months ago, but 15th of June, and I think it was 2011, all the wallabies got decapitated at Sobey Hall Zoo. Yeah. We did, yeah. You know, and it's it's just a strange one. You, you know, well, it started it started with one actually, and then subsequently they all sort of perished. And fifteenth uh, of June, fifteenth of June, triangling a pea crop, which I talked about, I think in book two as well, is when that occurred. When Pete, I'm not saying surname, Peter's walking his dog up Cliff Lane, fifteenth of June, I think it was 2017, and alerted me to it, and I went up and got photographs of it, took a soil sample. Uh, why 15th of June, Andy? I really don't know. Now, you know, there's so many similarities. Just briefly jump away from Humanby. Last, on Tuesday night, the 7th of February, I'm up there, there's myself, Bob Brown and Peter. And I'm looking at the hill, the same hill. That's when I talked, touched on in the first podcast that we did, the first stream, that... Within the zone of strangeness, there's concentrated hot spots, uh, you know. And I'm I'm sort of facing my back to the sea, and I just said to I've just seen an orange kind of light on the hill. This is Tuesday that's just gone, and uh, they're looking at it. I can't see anything at this time, and then suddenly an orange light just comes up from the ground and it stays there, and then goes back down. Can't work this out. Put the little camera on, Psionics. I wish I'd have put the Sony on. Brilliant cameras, the Psionics people. I wouldn't dis discourage people from buying them, but you don't get a true representation of the colour that you're looking at. It's bright orange, what I was looking at. So filming it, 
I've got it. It comes up, it goes down. So we, we've got it on film. You know, I've, not, I've downloaded it. It's on this PC. So we've got that on film. But that's the 7th. So where am I going with this? 7th of February 2020, Bob Brown, myself, and we talked about Gemma, who was with us, seeing the square of white light on the hill. 2020, 7th of June, 7th of June, we see this object. Uh, then we go back to 2019. Apologies, people, I'm ahead of myself. February, 7th of February. I think you'd already got that, Andrew, haven't you, anyway? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're in February because we've jumped from Humanby, but I just I think it's worth noting. 8th of February, 2019, the military guys claim they've seen this weird creature on the clifftops within 500 yards of that hill. You, you know, it, no, none of these people know each other. Well, Bob and Bob Brown and I know, don't we? But uh, it's fascinating. So we, we've probably covered most of Humanby. I, I was contacted uh, about eighteen months ago by a guy who said he'd heard me talking about it, and he was coming home. I think he said he was a plumber. Well, I know he did. He was coming home that night, and he stopped his car in the road just down from the Dotterell pub to observe her huge triangle craft above him. He said they were an elderly couple, and they were in something like a Fiesta, he said, a small hatchback car, and they'd stopped, and they're looking up at this thing as well. It doesn't mean that, you know, that's that's connected to Humanby, but, you know, there is a, there is a lot of stuff sort of around it. So, yeah, to me, it's, a, it's just a fascinating story, Andrew. No, it really is, Paul. And, and as we kind of wrap up, there's one more question I suppose I've got on, on Hunman Bay is you talk about the the three years, there was three months in each of those years, June, July, August, 96, 97, 98. Why, why do you think there was a cycle of activity and happening which comes and peaks and then goes? And then obviously it culminated in that third year with the landing itself. Do you know, I, I haven't got an answer to it, but it definitely does go, peaks and troughs. It definitely does. I feel that we're going to have a bit of activity now up around the Bempton area, not just because we saw that on Tuesday night, but it's been absolutely flat for for months and months and months. And we all, I also noted that the, this it was it were really quiet. And I don't mean the what people term the Oz factor. We've not got that strangeness to it, but it was a really quiet night, uh, you know, on, on Tuesday night, very quiet, kind of ringing, kind of quiet. But why? Why does it go in uh, sort of peaks and then sort of big dips? I don't know. I haven't got an answer to that. Uh, but I think it's worth noting, and I, and it's you know, stati- statisticians is that the word? People who want to sort of look at the the data. I think I think we we could as researchers as people who are looking into these cases we could do with people like that out there I think they're just as important as me because we can we could probably see similarities and and maybe even predict when certain things might start occurring that's why I've always thought to myself with such a skinwalker ranch we'll use that as kind of the benchmark because everybody wants to touch on that area or places like the Hoyobaku forest where where strange things are said to happen if 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 researchers and people within those areas could cross-reference data, I think we would probably get a lot further. I wonder even, again, if those folks who are good with their numbers, analysts or, or meteorological 
which is a hard one to say, but, you know, were there any magnetic anomalies that would happen that would kind of culminate in those those months and years? And is that something, like you say, that happens now and again? Was it something with the sun at that time? You know, was there any kind of strange offshoots from the sun? Yeah, Who knows? solar flares or anything. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good point. And, and we, we, have, we have touched on the magnetic anomaly at Bempton, uh, you know, because that clearly exists. It's a negative magnetic anomaly. And you've got the trawlermen who talk about travelling or, or sailing out to fishing grounds, and they can do it for 10 years and experience nothing. And then on one particular day, the compass is just going stupid. They know, they know because the seasoned would see where they are, but uh, the, these these things happen. But I think a lot of people, it could be to do with magnetic anomalies, or I, I don't know enough about ley lines, but a magnetic anom- anomaly a negative and a positive is only a, an area where the the magnetism is either stronger or less. There's no mystical element attached to it, as some researchers kind of want you to believe. But that doesn't mean that it's not attributed to that. It's you know it's, uh, it's everything about it is fascinating. I mean we've just oh, we've just scraped the surface, I suppose, on Humanby, but uh, th- there is more to come on it. I mean I, I you know I, I saturated myself in it writing the second book. And, you know, it takes a big chunk up of the book. I think it's about ten to 15,000 words. But I've got more information now that can be rolled out, and I do intend reaching out to Andrew. I asked him if I could interview him a few months ago, and he said I could. So I shall be uh, just gleaning more information and just letting it roll from there. It's same as Willsthorpe. Willsthorpe's an incredible case. And we're only, from Humanby, we're only like eight miles up the coast, and that's September the 15th. 2009 you know and that that is as interesting as Hollandby uh, what we're seeing off the coast there well listen we'll maybe get to that another show uh it's been great to dive into Hunmanby. what I want to ask is just to finish off uh you've mentioned Will Flans on the previous recording we've done I know there have been a few updates on your Facebook where you've been doing post-production on Will Flans some narration uh, and I just wonder where are you at with Will Flans the documentary uh, piece yeah thank you well I, I think people will be sick of hearing me saying it Andy but we, we're close I mean we've done our part of it the music's been done I were at my daughter's recording studio last Saturday Day. Sat, I just sat with them. It was just nice not to be have to do out too stressful. And I think they were about 20 minutes into it. Mick Park, who's also working with my daughter, Jess and Nick. So there's Mick Park and Nick Britton who are doing, wanting to do the music. They've started at the back. They're starting at the front and they're going to meet in middle. All, all, all the, stem, the stems and everything to do with the production of the music. I didn't realise there was much in it. There's over 100 elements. As you go through the map, there's little rushes and peaks. There's lots and lots involved in the music. I just thought it was a matter of overlaying some music onto a film, and that was it. So, so and Jessica, we're, my daughter, who's a classically trained opera singer, she's putting all the harmonies in. It's going to be very haunting. So we're lucky, yeah, we've just got to wait for them. I think end of month we're going to be nearly there with it. You know, it's better than me saying like two years ago, well, we're nearly there. We are actually almost there. But we, we're so lucky because, I mean, the, the music's going to be stunning on its own. You know, Mick and the guy who he works with, Nick Britton, they've worked with some of the top artists in the world. I don't know if I touched on it last time we spoke, but I'm talking like people with Ruby uh, Turner, U2, Robbie Williams, you know, they, they've actually worked with these these people. It's not just like, oh, I know them and I've said hello to them. So to get that 
kind of uh, level of assistance with the music. Yeah. I th- I've considered ourselves very lucky. And the witnesses. You know, witnesses are absolutely stepping forward and, you know, laying these stories online for us. We're really fortunate. Well, we'll have you you back on. Definitely have you back on to discuss that once Wolf Lands is ready. So, Paul, thank you very much again for your time today. It's been great speaking with you. As always, thank you very much. Hi everyone, if you listen to the podcast on an Apple device, you can support directly by going on to Apple Podcasts and clicking the subscribe button, and for less than the price of a coffee per month, you can get early access to episodes, episodes in full, and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast, so thank you very much. Also, don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple a five-star review, and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks.